Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by Dr. Mary Louise Coulahan of NUI Galway. Her paper was entitled, As Wicked a Woman as Ever Was Bred in Ireland, Biographical Sources for the Study of Early Modern Irish Women. Okay, so this paper emerges from the early stages of a discussion that myself and Naomi have been having about uh, the idea of putting together an encyclopedia of early modern Irish women. Um, And we've been pondering the ways in which women who've been retrieved from the archives have evaded those kinds of standard reference works and the criteria for inclusion in a kind of biographical encyclopedia. Um, So what I offer today is really just a first foray into the range of sources that I've used in my research um, with some thoughts on how they might be useful for a biographical encyclopedia. So the quote um, that serves as the starting point for this paper is derived from English state correspondence. Uh, Warham St. Ledger wrote to William Cecil Lord Burley, Queen Elizabeth's Secretary of State, on the 15th of May 1581, reporting on the political agitation of Eleanor Butler, Countess of Desmond, writing, I know her to be as wicked a woman as ever was bred in Ireland, and one that hath been the chief instrument of her husband's rebellion. Now, Butler played a central role in the Desmond Rebellion, supporting her husband and negotiating for a resolution at different points. Um, Because she was so central, she was the subject of numerous and conflicting reports in the English state correspondence. So, as early as 1574, Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam wrote to Burley about her role as intermediary. The Countess, with her continual importunacy and constant asseveration of his conformity, made us to hope he would in time prove so conformable as she reported him. It's a very slippery kind of report, I think. She reports him to be one thing, but then they find that she's not, and he's not. Um, As the Second Munster Rebellion evolved, she incurred the wrath of officials. Writing to Walsingham on the 16th of February uh, 1580, Lord Justice Pelham reported her desire to come to England to petition in person on her own behalf, advising that there is not any amongst the conspirators that more encourageth the disloyalty of the Earl than she. Geoffrey Fenton, writing to the Earl of Leicester from a camp near Askeaton uh, in August that year, is equally apprehensive. The Countess came in at her day assigned, but with the same impudency wherewith she had covered her face since the first breaking out with her husband, yet taketh she upon her to work him to submission. So you've got this containment of contradictions here. She's impudent, but she's working towards submission. She's got importunacy, but she's trying to aim at conformity. Um, And I think ultimately that the vehemence of this distaste uh, suggests that it was her agency as a female political actor rather than her impulse for conflict resolution that aroused their contempt. 
Um, as Eleanor moved against her enemies, she alleged their double dealing directly to the crown and provoked their ire. So we have by October 1580, Sir Nicholas Malby, then Governor of Munster, writing to Francis Walsingham um, to defend himself, and his self defence is grounded in defamation of his accuser, of Eleanor. Uh, that the words of an infamous woman, the wife of a proclaimed traitor, herself a notorious traitress, that the greatest worker of these wicked rebellions in the Pope's behalf should carry that credit to deface the faithful service of a dutiful and honest servant. Now, this litany of condemnation and faint praise demonstrates, I think, the extent to which she skillfully manoeuvred uh, between political sides. The regular castigations of Eleanor as wily, crafty and not to be trusted point to her skills in negotiating a very tricky situation. Now this kind of notoriety brings a woman like Eleanor Butler to the attention of historians. But the partiality and self-interest of those who write about her render these kinds of reports unreliable. They're biographical sources to be carefully sifted. In her case, we're not dependent on these, this kind of third-hand report to make our judgments. We also have her own petition letters addressed directly to Burley, Elizabeth and the English Privy Council. But those writings are just as politically situated as those of her detractors. A petition is written to secure a particular suit, to obtain a request, to persuade. It participates in its own kind of rhetoric. So you're kind of caught juxtaposing different kinds of sources that are serving their own ideological agendas. What's more, Butler was a member of the old English nobility, so her life is documented. We are less fortunate with the Ulster Gaelic noblewoman, Roisni Hocherty, Rosa O'Doherty, who is a member of the expedition known as the Flight of the Earls. Her political activism on the continent aroused English suspicions, which are attested in surveillance reports on her. So again, English state correspondence as the source. We only have one single letter surviving by O'Doherty, written in 1642 from Louvain to a priest in Ireland. Uh, but again, in O'Doherty's case, her nobility ensures that records of her life survive, as has been synthesised in Gerald Cassaway's really excellent article on her, piecing together her biography from the traces of English surveillance reports, the official records of the Spanish state. So my point really in this regard is that class confers recognition. Biographical details regarding women of the nobility are more likely to be recorded. Dates of birth and death, those standard parameters of biography, are usually attested for, no, for the nobility. But what of women whose lives are preserved in the oral tradition, or who are known only because their writing was preserved? Such cases serve a dual purpose. Their literary traces remind us not to assume that the survival of a letter necessarily entails access to an authentic female voice. But their literary traces also illustrate the problems of mining a literary text for biographical data. The poet Kathleen Dove, for example, whose five elegies on the O'Briens of Thomond are compiled in an 18th century Dunera, a poem book connected to the O'Brien family, is known only as the author of these elegies. Textual evidence suggests that she operated within the sphere of patronage of Thurlock Roe MacMahon, um, 
brother-in-law to the fourth Earl of Thomond, to whom she refers as Mahria, my lord. Her subject's dates of death, the subjects of these elegies, uh, are recorded because of their noble status. So they can provide us with the floruit of 1624 to 1629. But any further information on her life is derived from the oral tradition. Stories about Kathleen Dove or her daughter uh, survived from Munster in the 18th and 19th centuries. There's stories about her rescuing a young man from the grasp of Cleena, the fairy queen of Munster. So you're already into that kind of legendary fairy kind of sphere if you're trying to mine the oral tradition uh, for biographical data. And of course, in Kathleen Dove's case, that level of biographical information is too scant. Uh, so it precludes her from inclusion in the Dictionary of Irish Biography, for example. Similarly, Mrs. Briver, about whom Naomi's the expert, Naomi's published some great work on Mrs. Briver, we have no first name for this woman. She's a woman you'd want to put into this kind of encyclopedia. All we know is that she was the wife of the mayor of Waterford, Francis Briver. But she's significant because she authored two accounts of the rebellion in Waterford in 1640, late 1641-1642. Now, how do we include someone like that? I was going to talk about Philo Philippa as well, but this is before I heard Andrew's paper next door. I think that I will pick up, though, uh, just in brief what I was going to say about her. Most of us will be aware that she's an anonym, there's an anonymous poem written about a fan of Catherine Phillips, hence the Philo Philippa. All we know about this is the text. It's anonymous. Andrew proposed next door that it may be uh, the satirical product of a group of poet lawyers uh, in Restoration Dublin. Um, Phillips herself was uncertain about this poem. She wrote to a friend called Charles Cottrell, one of them, one of the authors of these poems about me, who pretends to be a woman, writes very well, but I cannot imagine who the author is, nor by any inquiry I can make have hitherto been able to discover. I intend to keep that copy by me to show it to you when we next meet. So this kind of uncertainty principle, I think, is part of what I'm trying to trace here with this idea of an encyclopedia of early modern Irish women. Uncertainty pervades a lot of what we know. Um, and that uncertainty, I think, was very succinctly encapsulated by Andrew, who's not, I think, currently here. Oh, there you are. In 2003, Andrew, this is what you said. <laughs> uh, I think it's a great kind of, it, it kind of really encapsulates all the issues thrown up by the Philo Philippa poem. Conventional expectations of what a woman living in Dublin in 1663 would be likely to write are completely overturned by this ardent, radical, feminist verse epistle. What else, one wonders, did this remarkable woman write? Who was she? Where was she educated? In what environment could she have explored her ideas before presenting them in as confident a manner as she does here? Can we assume that other verse of this calibre and vigour was circulating in court circles in the early 1660s? And I guess Andrew's paper answered that question. Yes, we can. Was Philo Philippa really a man? And it's worth noting, I'd just like to say, that... The assumptions, when it comes to anonymous authorship, assumptions are generally weighted towards male authorship. If something's good and it's anonymous, let's assume it's by a man. Uh, it does tend to happen. I think probably the most high-profile example of the debunking of that assumption uh, was David Norbrook's work on Lucy Hutchinson, on the, the biblical epic poem Order and Disorder, which was published anonymously, uh, known to come from her family and attributed to her brother. 
but Norbrook has conclusively proved, I think, that it's now by Lucy Hutchinson herself. But I think Andrew concludes there saying there are no answers to these questions, and I concur. There are no answers, but I think they're interesting questions to be teasing out. Um, where we do have large caches of sources on women in numbers, these tend to serve particular agendas. For example, the biographical information recorded in the 1641 depositions, which Brona was talking about this morning, is determined by the role of the Commission to record economic loss and to gather information on the rebellion, I'm going to call it. Um, the women who deposed provided their names, their places of abode, status and occupation, but dates of birth or death <clears throat> were not considered important unless they occurred as a direct consequence of the rising itself. The focus of those narratives is on accounts of deprivation and robbery, estimates of losses, identification of rebels. Even a female deponent as well known to us in history as Elizabeth Price, whose deposition includes plentiful information on the sufferings of her children, on the drownings at Portadown Bridge and the vengeful apparition that appeared afterwards, even that doesn't provide the more typical biographical details demanded for large-scale reference works. So she also is absent from the Dictionary of Irish Biography. <clears throat> and I think her case raises an interesting question about the selection criteria we might employ for any mooted encyclopedia. On the one hand, I'd argue that Price's deposition, well-known and comprehensive as it is, constitutes a strong justification for her inclusion in an encyclopedia. But what about the many other women whose depositions were recorded? Where might we draw the line in terms of uh, significance? And I think the more I've been thinking this through, it seems that the, what you'd want to include is something that has, that's at an extreme level of significance, extreme experience of violence, as with Elizabeth Price, um, the extreme unusual documentation of your having written something, which again is unusual. Um, even ostensibly autobiographical writing, like that of John Rogers's congregation in Christchurch, Dublin in the early 1650s, omits the dates of birth and death that are considered essential to scholarly volumes. The function of those life narratives, which were declared in church and edited by Rogers in 1653, was to testify to conversion experience. So it's a very autobiographical form. Um, but uh, they, these are printed in England as a stimulus to Puritan culture. Um, they're shaped by an agenda that's certainly not consonant with the conventions of modern biography. Elizabeth Avery is the best known of the women to speak in this congregation. Hers is quite a detailed conversion narrative about her experience of the deaths of children, her experience of Civil War England. But the reason that she's included in the Encyclopedia of English Renaissance Literature, which came out this year or last year, is because she was a radical author in her own right. She published a work called Scripture Prophecies Opened, which is a millenarian work. She was also lucky enough to be related to men who were Presbyterian radical thinkers who didn't like her written work. So her brother, who was a pastor in New England, published another work as a riposte to hers. So reputation is kind of conferred also by other people responding to you uh, at the time. Um, but I'd like to finish up with a brief discussion of nuns and nuns' obituaries and nuns' chronicles. Um, they also are useful sources, although they too lean towards a particular generic predisposition. 
More happily for the modern biographer, obituaries aim for precision in recording dates, dates of birth, dates of profession, dates of death. But they can be sparse. To fit the jigsaw pieces together, a range of texts often has to be sifted and collated. Now, I had the pleasure of speaking at the Mihal O'Clary Institute about a year ago, um, and I alluded then to what I think is an intriguing reference to an Irish nun in an English poor Clare convent in Rouen. Um, and I'd like to revisit this briefly because I found out more about the problems. So I'm not just repeating myself. I would like to present the fruits of further uh, research. Here's the first reference to her that I found, which I spoke about before. This is from the Profession book in Rouen. Um, it recounts uh, that in 1666 made her profession Sister Bridget Joseph Barnwall of the Irish nation, aged 18, died the 16th of December. She lived 21 years here, then went to Ireland, lived 29 years, died in 1715, aged 67. The inconstancy of temper of the Irish, which we had experience of, made the community decree never more to take any that was Irish, both by father and mother. <laughs> now, I wanted to find out what caused the problem. And the, the problem is that the, the bare obituary or profession book isn't going to give you any narrative details. So I managed to get at the Rouen Chronicles, which are soon to be published by Pickering and Chateau, actually, um, and piece together, although not entirely satisfactorily, the, the background story. Um, Barnwall came to Rouen from Ireland with her uncle, Father Netterville. Um, she was clothed in June 1665 and professed in July 1666. Uh, the chronicler recounts that she was very good for some years after, till to her great misfortune, Sister Claire Ludovic Tute, with leave of superiors, came from Dieppe, her monastery there being broke up in the time of war. Now, Tute was also Irish. Um, and what you have is kind of a problem of conflicting sources. The dates don't tally up. This is why I'm still not satisfied with it. So at this point, the chronicler says that there was no problem with Barnwall until Chute arrived. But in another part of the chronicle, we're told that Chute arrived in 1664, two years before um, Barnwall. But anyway, I'll get to the good stuff rather than... Uh, spend too much time on just give you the, the extra bits of the story. This is about Toot, so a different part of the chronicle tells us about Toot, who had come from Dieppe. Um, Toot's dissatisfaction in Rouen came to a head with the election of Abbess Gifford. And Toot said that she was no member of the House uh, because she wasn't allowed vote. Because she came from Dieppe, she wasn't a, a member of the Rouen House. She didn't have a vote in the election. So saying she was no member of the House, she desired nothing more than to go from us, seeing as she could not live, as she said, according to her profession, in being under the order. But... This was thought only a pretense to get away, she never mentioning the same till she saw she could not get out otherwise. Ultimately, Chute did get out in 1671, but she caused problems in terms of her influence over Barnwall, and the latter's discontent festered over a number of years. We're told that the two women, Chute and Barnwall, began to talk much of their friends and country. Sister Bridget Barnwall began also to fall from her duty and take haughty airs and quarrel with the young about the place and such like follies, neglecting her observance and submission to superiors. It is easily to be imagined that a religious living in this manner would soon be disgusted with her state. So Barnwall apparently kept on agitating. Ultimately, um, she got away. Uh, 
The problem with this kind of a source is that they tend to skirt around the issue. So the dates don't tally up. I can talk about that later if you want. Um, but the, the gist of the narrative seems to be that Chute causes problems. Barnwall ultimately decides she needs to go. She, makes, she promises to, um, to reform herself, but... Uh, uh, in effect, we're told, she did nothing of what Bonaventure Gifford ordained her, and he seeing there was no hopes of her amendment and that she gave public scandal in the community and perpetually disquieted their repose, cancelled Mother Abess to let her go. So she got away because she was causing a public scandal. There's nothing about what exactly the nature of the public scandal could be. Um, it's suggested that her disruptiveness was rooted in a heightened awareness of Irish nationhood and that it threatened to spill over into the public realm and it's worth bearing in mind that this was an English convent uh, at this point it's 1679 this is in the aftermath of the 1678 Oates plot uh, when there's a flood of noble refugees arriving at Rouen looking for succour in the convent and any public scandal would potentially jeopardise their funding so to pull all of this together um, each of these biographical sources is a genre in itself, offering different kinds of evidence. There's a juxtaposition today, I think, of state correspondence and third-person narratives, which are replete with contemporaries' strong opinions about these women, about the women who are their subjects. And that sits, I think, uneasily with the kinds of primary texts I've been outlining, uh, texts authored by women like letters or poems or depositions, um, and I think that highlights the generic paradigms that always shape biographical data. The range of sources described here can be rich in glimpses of early modern Irish women's lives, but they're partial and selective, driven by ideological principles or political and religious values that are not always starkly apparent when dealing with just the one genre. And many of these texts would be deemed unsatisfactory sources for standard reference works, lacking key fields such as dates and hard facts, tending rather towards the realm of reputation. So the women I've outlined come to our attention because of their literary achievement, their political activism, their experience of warfare, or their sheer irritation of those who knew them, in the case of Barnwall. It is, I think, their exceptionalism that marks them out. The quotation with which I began, as wicked a woman as ever was bred in Ireland, explicitly identifies superlatives, singularity, extraordinariness. So where do we draw the line in selecting women for encyclopedic attention? Surely they, we must begin with what they did, with their achievements or reputation. But I think there's an interesting dimension of the encyclopedia as a genre, which is that it aims to balance the principle of the extraordinary against that of quantity, the woman who's unusual or unique against the volume of women who were unusual and unique. So thank you for your attention. Thank you.